Today, a composer who writes for the cinema reaches a worldwide audience to begin with. And it is the only form of art today which uses music as part of its artistic expression. I don't feel uh, that the theater, for example, the living theater, uses music to the extent that uh, cinema does. As a matter of fact, I may be bold enough to say that with very few exceptions, a piece of film or a film cannot come to life without the help of music of some kind. Hi, my name is Jamie Roberts. And I'm Robert Lendrum. And this is the Running Scared Podcast. Terrifying tracks. So how was the week, Rob? Uh, yeah, great week, busy week. Things were, I don't know, man, I don't know. Who cares? Let's get into it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jamie, I know you're like the music guy here, but I'm really excited to be launching this new series. This is your idea. Uh, we're going to do uh, a deep dive on soundtracks. And I think for today, what you wanted to do is sort of a crash course on the history of horror soundtracks. We're going to call this Terrifying Tracks. The premise will be to take a very thorough look at horror film music. We're thinking about one film per episode where we can really dig in to the movie, the composer, the scoring style, you know, and see how they apply to actually making the film, making the film a, a scary and, and thrilling horror film. Very excited about this. Wanted to do this for a while. And, you know, anybody that's doing the podcasting out there knows everything just takes time and, you know, just, you know, studying it at school and gigging around for for many years trying to make it in an indie band and then now teaching in a middle school and even dabbling in a little bit of composing uh, with my own music. You know, I'm just, I'm just excited to, to really kind of get into it. So what I think is going to be interesting is, you know, I'm going to kind of bring some musical flavor to this. I think musical knowledge and Rob, I know, you know, we've gone to many shows together. You've got such a great eclectic music taste uh, and a good understanding of sound. So I think if we bring that together, it's it's going to be really interesting um, and give, a, I think, an interesting perspective to the listener. Yeah. So it's funny you mention that because like in my day to day, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a producer and I'm making, mostly I make promotion, although I do make like some short form content too, but music plays a huge role. And I mean, we, we operate off these giant stock music website websites, right? So they have tons and tons of things and like kind of whatever you're looking for, there's 500 examples of it. And you kind of got to pick through it to find things that are really good. Cause there's, there's a lot of stuff that gets dated really, really quickly, or just some of these sites have been on going for so long that there some parts of their database are dated. So you want to keep up on the modern stuff and what they're putting out. And some of the music is fantastic. Like, you know, you don't give stock music, um, stock musicians enough credit, honestly, like these guys are cranking out things that, you know, that really fall in line with the genres and the, and the, and the films and the movies and the TV shows that are out there right now. And so for us, like if I'm doing something super intense, I am hunting a specific kind of sort of epic music at times, or there's other times that we're trying to make, you know, some certain sports look cool. Right. And like, so we try to find like music that is more in line with today's choices and with today's audiences. So you're always trying to find a way to add flavor to whatever you're making and music sets that tone. That's how, you know, sometimes it is actually a driving force in the storytelling. Just to clarify for our, our listeners, this is going to be our um, sort of crash course. But the plan here between me and Jamie is to make short 
little pods that we're going to put on our Patreon. So Jamie is going to sort of uh, deep focus on a few things and then we'll come on together. And, and, you know, I'm more of a layman in the music world in terms of speaking about how it's made, but definitely in terms of how it affects uh, visuals, I can definitely speak to. So we are going to create a series of these on our Patreon. So Jamie, where do you want to begin with this? Because I know we want to talk about music and horror films, but like, where do you start? And Yeah, Rob, I think we'll just start right at the beginning. Let me just do a little test right here. Yeah. When you think of a horror film score, what movie comes to mind first? Uh, for me, it's Psycho, immediately. Shower scene. <laughs> right? That's what I go to. That and Buster Rhymes, give me some more. Is that H2O? No, but he, no, 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 because he sampled that song. He samples the, um, actually, it's not the song from the, from the shower scene. He samples the main theme of Psycho for Give Me Some More. Psycho, Bernard Herrmann. It's a classic score, brilliant composer, many movies, Psycho and Vertigo come to mind. But yeah, I just thought it was going to be either that or Halloween. I know John Carpenter's score for Halloween is, um, is, so recognizable mm-hmm. um, and equally classic, but also both very different, um, but equally chilling in their composition and application in film. Yeah, I gotta say, like Halloween, love that track, that that opening theme, and definitely love the influence it's had. Like, I, I'm a big synth fan, like musically, so I do love. Yeah, like, yeah, I love sure. how I love how like it follows one of the movies we reviewed, as well as uh, the guest, like. There's such great, cool kind of 80 soundtracks that came that, that were highly influenced by the Halloween soundtrack. Um, but yeah, if you're going to talk about like what soundtrack pops in my head, for sure, Psycho. It was really, I mean, obviously the shower scene, it's really impactful. The violins, it's so integral to the storytelling. It's, it's the one that stands out, that shower scene, because of course the shower scene is so impactful because people like literally were scared to take showers. My mom's even said that to me. She was scared. She was scared to take showers after that movie. Um, but there's other, um, you know, tracks in that soundtrack that I'm aware of. Like the main theme I, I talked about that Buster Rhymes sampled. Like That song is so strange and eerie and sort of, Sets the tone. I think it's early on in the movie when she's in the car, right? Coming to, uh, she hasn't arrived at the Bates Motel yet. Yeah, it's it's really good. That that one little bit there just really shows good movement in in the melody and just, but but definitely coupled with that unsettling nature and absolutely just propel the storytelling. But Rob, Psycho is in the '60s. Let's let's back it up. Let's back it up. Okay. So where do you want to start all this? I mean, there are like a hundred years of horror movies to go through. Where do you want to begin? Yeah, Rob, I think we got to go from the beginning. And I mean, the very beginning. I actually think it's interesting. That's a bit ironic that, you know, horror film score, one of the first horror film score was actually made for a silent film. Um, Nosferatu, you know, that is 1922. Uh, that's the Dracula movie. So it was a silent film, but there was an actually... Um, in movies like this at this time, you would have like a live band, you would have like a pit band playing. And the gentleman that composed the score for this, a German by the name of Hans Erdmann, was like a a classically trained musician. And he did the original score. Now the problem is that most of that score 
is gone. But we do have a little bit of, of, the, of the piece to play, um, which we can listen to now. Uh, that's that's cool i mean it's simple it's very moody but like i'm it's slow it's aware of its own pace i I like it one thing i want to ask you jamie about that idea of the band playing a film it's funny i don't i wish i knew this because i don't when a film traveled did they have to hire a new local band every time rob that's a great question and really the answer is money it's interesting that, you know, it was always sort of trendy or in vogue to make horror or sometimes by necessity to make horror films on a low budget, as we're going to see throughout the years, just because horror, you know, is not a mainstream genre. Now, it, it sort of has evolved into that. But before, often there wasn't a ton of financial backing behind some of these films. So if there was one was traveling around and maybe had a little bit more of a budget then that band could travel, that smaller band. But in other times, you would just sort of pick up local musicians if you were moving around from from city to city, especially sort of at the turn of the century, back when Nosferatu was, uh, you know, was was filmed and and was being staged, right? So it's all about money. Yeah, that that opening theme it reminds me when I listen to it of the opening piece of an operatic stage production. You know, often you get that overture or you get that prelude, that beginning, right? And it sort of of eases the audience into whatever is happening, like hence the idea of of opening. And then you had, um, you know, some other productions that sort of had a similar kind of, uh, a similar kind of sound. You'd have, you know, Phantom of the Opera. Uh, The only difference is that a lot of these earlier movies would repurpose existing classical music. So Nosferatu had an original scores early on. We don't get much of it. Some of those horror films to come afterwards, like Phantom of the Opera, actually use just classical music or pieces of art music from, from you know, the romantic time period, parts of the classical time period, late classical period in the score. It's interesting. It wasn't until 1935 where we actually got an original piece of music. Funnily enough, it was Bride of Frankenstein. So this was a piece from Franz Waxman. This guy's a, uh, has kind of an interesting story. He was a German-born Jewish composer, and he actually fled an increasingly hostile Germany in 1934. Okay, and that kind of informed a lot of the um, his passion and drive for. I don't want to say getting another lease on life, but he spoke about that as he came and became a very successful composer in his own right. You know, he did the work for Sunset Boulevard, um, and and really. Um, incorporated a lot of what sort of became at that time standard fare for horror music. A lot of loud accents, um, a lot of drone, a lot of spiraling and ascending passages, all aimed at creating confusion and a sense of unease. Yeah, it's a tough one for me because it's a time period that I don't, I don't watch many movies from this time period. So I always just look at it yeah. like, oh, that's old TV or that's old movies. And I don't really have a passion for that that genre so but i can definitely hear like oh this is 
what a lot of stuff that are to sound like from that time period, even like crime movies, yeah, it, right? It, they it, would pull from this. It kind of starts like with thrillers. the, you know what I mean? <laughs> with that big sort of like, just that, like that ostinato that's happening. And yeah, the thing too, like there was so much more work for the musician to do back then. Cause the, the movies used to put the credits at the front and you had to sit through like a three and a half minute long bunch of slides basically of of credits and so they'd play a song under it and yeah you had to sit there and wait for it before you even got to the movie and this opening song would be something like you said would set the tone for the the whole film the the blueprint was from like stage productions right where you would have that that bigger or that opening scene right where everything would get set up in the production similar to how movies were made right and you know that changes over time but of course, right? As the music is doing a lot of the work to set this set the the tone and the mood and the feelings, sort of the same thing in filming, except exactly you see the credits. So Rob, let's um let's kind of jump ahead. So we're nineteen thirty-five. So, you know, we're kind of going through, we've got um a couple of composers, we've got some original music just starting to be made. And now we're gonna go through the uh the forties and fifties, and you know, there's some films being made, but something really changes in the 60s. What do you what do you think that might be? Okay, so now we're in we're in Hitchcock territory, right? So what did he do to like, you know, change the game? Oh my god, what did he do? He well, so maybe it's not what he did. It it was him in a partnership with uh with Bernard Herrmann, but um horror music changes here forever and this is really the jumping off point for everything that's going to come. You know, you had Romero doing some good work, but really it's the Hitchcock Herrmann partnership that transcends, uh, transcends horror film music. First off, it's like, it's less orchestral. Does that mean a step away from classical too? Or that's sort of, am I am I conflating two things there or is that the same thing? Yeah, this, the classical style that we would know from, you know, Haydn and, you know, early Beethoven and Mozart, that's not really used with horror film music. A lot of it is when they're, when they're repurposing a lot of the classical art music, that's more from you know, the romantic period, right? Turn of the century music. Even a lot of what we'll get into is like atonal music, cage, crumb, um, th- that kind of, that kind of. So it's not really classical. It's more just the kind of amount of instruments, right? So he actually, for this, uh, for Psycho, he had a, a smaller string section, more of a budget, um, bit of a fad. Uh, you know what I mean? Depends on the way you look at it. Um, smaller groupings of musicians, I guess, were just a little bit more desirable for uh, for this time period, right? The, the thing with this movie is you've got the two main pieces. You've got the prelude and then you've also got this shower scene. But, you know, the big change is when you listen to the music, it is becoming an, an extension of the of what is happening on the screen. Rob, we've kind of talked about it, but is there anything else you that you that you thought of or anything come to mind, anything jump out at you with those two pieces from uh, Bernard Herrmann? No, I guess what occurs to me is that to me, as an entree musician, I didn't realize like, oh, you said they dropped the orchestra, but it's still because it's classical instruments. I didn't really make that leap in my brain. I'm still hearing the violins like as a team, you know, as I don't think it's a single violin. No, there's a quartet there. Yeah, there's this particular part. There's a cello in there, double bass. There's a viola part, a violin. I think a violin one and two. So yeah, you definitely have you have multiple strings, which creates a nice texture, right? Because each of those instruments is going to be sort of working on a different range. So yeah, you just don't have a big orchestra, brass, you know what I mean? Bassoon, oboe, timpani, like all that kind of stuff that you would have, you would have had before. Right. So we're not talking Peter and the Wolf anymore. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, no, no. We're just talking a smaller, smaller section. So let's kind of just shift over. By the way, that so prelude was not what I was thinking of. I was thinking of the car scene when she's driving. Uh, maybe because I'm a hip hop fan, I know that track more than I knew the prelude. Um, but I'm thinking of the one that sounds more mysterious. The I, I love the prelude. I think that's really the understated piece. And what if he was really good at is making music that um, not only strengthened what was happening on the screen, but also typified what might be happening in the character's mind. What might they be thinking? You know, he would make music that just perfectly matched what the character would be thinking inside. You know, it was really good and, and matched with the facial expressions um, of Janet Lee in, in some of these scenes. It was amazing. So what was or happening on the screen in the prelude, by the way? Because I, I haven't seen Psycho in a long time. What What is going on? So this is where she's driving the car and there's, and she's being, there's someone behind her and she keeps on looking, but you know, it's interesting. Like this music traditionally rooted in a Western art tradition. So you got discernible key center, you have classical harmonic progressions, right? You have your cadences that are all there and the instrumentation supports it. It doesn't matter if it's a big um, orchestral or if it's a smaller string orchestra, but like the seventies and eighties, it becomes like really exciting with what happens because there's a lot more experimentation and um, you know, there's really, really some cool things that, uh, that happen in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Disco. Disco is great. It's perfect for <laughs> horror movies. Um, like the, I'm kidding, but I love the shining Halloween exorcist omen. I mean, there were some awesome movies in the seventies that had really cool soundtracks that were very like, dominant like i don't know they they they're very memorable uh and now that i think about it, those scores were really different uh, they're kind of unique compared to the stuff that you've been talking about so far yeah like they're experimental they're atonal they're weird time signatures there's strange chants. there's latin influence the 70s like anything were just they were a step forward and so the idea of what horror music could be was absolutely changing boundaries were being pushed and directors were seeking out new ways to musically support their films like you look at Kubrick's um, Shining, like it's a sparkling example of the new style of a film soundtrack, right? Well, the there's music, not much music in that movie, is there? Th no, there's actually a lot of music. The only thing is, though, it's mostly atonal. So that's where you see the big difference. When you listen to Psycho or you listen to a uh, Hitchcock film, the music, like I said, it's haunting, but it's pretty rooted in a key center. You can okay, hear so a it's melody. Okay, so it's a song. It's a, but, well, yeah, it's a song, I guess you could but, say. But like right? The Shining, it's like a drone. They're drone. They're like, like it's avant-garde music. It's kind of, there's no key center. There's no, uh, there's no real rhythmic center. His timing and flow of each piece is, is more treated towards the mood and the feeling of the characters at the time, right? So as you know, the main character sort of descends into further madness. The music really supports that. Most of that music is all repurposed. It's all existing music that was taken and used on that film, right? Just to kind of create the tension that exists within that movie. Because if you watch The Shining, it's in a completely immersion of just tension during the whole, uh, the, the whole movie. The opening track when they're driving and they're going through the mountains is actually an original piece. It is like very haunting. And when I listened to it, and we're going to listen to it in a second, it actually made me think of a symphony. Okay. So what we're going to do now is we're going to play 
this the opening track uh, in Shining where the credits roll up. So we're going to play that. And then right after, we're going to play Hector Berlioz was a French composer and one of his famous works was Symphonie Fantastique, which was a five-minute five-movement piece. So in the fifth movement from about the 3-minute mark to 350, I want you to listen closely. I want you to see if I want to hear if you can see any similarities between the two. So let's play those now. Jim, you might have to explain this one to me because to me, I see, I hear kind of maybe the resemblance you're talking about, but to me, Shining is so slow and taking its sweet time to get anywhere. But uh, Berlioz it kind of does explode into that kind of orchestral, big orchestra style, fast movement stuff that I, I wasn't expecting to hear when you said they were going to sound alike. Oh no, you've Rob, you've got that one part that is basically identical where it goes. Oh, you, oh you're doing a very specific oh sorry, I didn't see that time signature. Kind of like this descending pass or passage with these half notes. And what's interesting it's like they sampled one small part of what he does yeah, it, and blew it, it up. One hundred percent because it's very, very specific. And and here here's the thing. The shining is about well, we know what the story is, but really it's about a man descending into madness and his mental state deteriorating from, he was, you know, questionable sort of how with it he was at the beginning, but you see how everything changes from the beginning of the film all the way to the end. And Symphony Fantastique was referred to by Leonard Bernstein, one of the most famous uh, uh, conductors of all time as the first hallucinatory symphony because of the music that was in it. And it created like a dream. Is that like, the, is that like some all, like critics way of saying like this guy was high when he made this? <laughs> well, basically like, but it was more for, I guess it was more of like for the mind than, than anything else. And it really sort of transformed you. If you listen to the whole symphony into really a state of psychedelica. So you're in your head. And I found it very, very interesting that the one piece of original music for The Shining, the main motive of that beginning, is basically directly taken from Symphony Fantastique, both of which have connections to the mental state. So I thought, for me, I get excited when I when I find stuff like that because when I listen to it again, Big I was like, I'm a fan. This guy. <laughs> Is that what you're telling me? Green, the Green Fairy. Yeah. No, I just thought it was really interesting. And again, you know, we've got those two clips up there, so you can you can take um you can take a listen to that. So, you know, you had the shining, and then you know, you had the omen with the Latin flair. It's sounding almost like like old Gregorian chant. 
How's that? Yeah, the exor- old Latin is in like old Latin. I think he meant like, I think he meant like, uh, like Maria. <laughs> Never mind. Like Maria, Maria, like West no. Side Story. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, like <laughs> what's that dance? Flamenco dancing. I was like, what? Yeah. No, you've got like you've got like um, one like a for sure a Latin a Latin kind of component into it. You got Exorcist in fifteen eight time with uh, Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. Because really it brings us to um, the the quintessential soundtrack, not quintessential, but one of the most popular ones ever. And in the 70s is like the main theme to Halloween. Rob, what do you think of Halloween? What do you think of that piece? That's Carpenter's opening with the synths that come in and the big chords. What do you what do you like that? What do you think about that? Ah, well, I mean, we talked about it on the Halloween pod. I yeah. love I love it. Um, super intense. I think we what we actually talked about something specific. The piano is the fear, and the what's the bass? I guess you call it the boom boom. What do you call that? Well, those are like the synth, like those are the chords that yeah. come in. So the synth chords to me are the pursuing Michael Myers. The, the They are him. Yeah. If you were to like embody it in some way, like to me, it's very much about like the anxiety is on top with the piano and that's driving everything. And the, yeah. and the unstoppable force that is coming towards you, who is Michael Myers is embodied by that, like those deep chords. Yeah. He's uh, that's like the lead motif the specific music that's associated with him, right? Really meant to embody the character. And we'll talk about the leitmotif and how it's used in film and how it's used in horror film, especially, you know, we talk about like the music that the heavy gets, right? Quote unquote. Um, that's, that's what that is. But, but 100% is right. When I go back and listen to it, one of the coolest things is, is like that percussive, like clock ticking, like, you know what I mean? That they have in that piece. I think it's so cool because it really gives a state of, of moving forward, right? Like this, 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 this pace, this momentum, which adds like this tension to it. I think it's amazing. So tubular bells comes after the Halloween. No, that's tubular bells are from exorcist, right? So exorcist was done in 73 and Halloween was done in 78. And Carpenter said that he, like, if you listen to the two of them. That's what I was about like, to say. Like, back to back. Yeah. And one of them is in 15-8 time, which is like, I don't know anything in 15-8 time. And Halloween's in 5-4. And even with the groupings of um, of of the music and when those chords come in, you know, generally it would go through, you know, four and then four and then be in on the next one. But it's, you know, he's playing with when the accents are sitting, Right which just, again, you're just not expecting it. Your body, you know, the brain is set up in a way for us to uh, respond well to certain chord progressions, certain time signatures. And a lot of the music that's happening here doesn't like, doesn't really follow that roadmap. So you can definitely hear that what Halloween owes to tubular bells with the piano, like, yeah. but tubular bells definitely feels 
bit cornier and doesn't quite instill any sort of sense of fear or anxiety in me. It just, it's a little bit too twinkly to me to like penetrate, to like become scary. Whereas Halloween like grabs you by the throat right oh, away. Oh, for sure. And you know, what's interesting with that is that William Freakin wanted something like that. You know, Lalo Schifrin, first off, Bernard Herman was going to do the score for Exorcist and that just wasn't happening. And then Lalo, Lalo Schifrin was going to do it and created the opening. And it was like, horror music that you would just think like there was like high pitched strings and it was very, very dramatic. And, and he said, fucking no way, man. Like we wanted something, I guess, to get out of the way of the characters and the storytelling itself. And that's why he went to tubular bells. And now it's become like, everybody knows that connected to exorcist, but yeah. And then with synth, with the, with Halloween, and it's not even blown out that far. I think you even mentioned in our pod that Halloween two actually picked up and went a little further with the synth and the soundtrack, but nightmare on Elm street, you know, you hear it in the keep, um, Carpenter did the fog. Um, he didn't score the thing, but you can see that he probably had a lot to do with it, or at least, you know, gave the, uh, who is it? Marconi gave him like a sort of sense of where he wanted to yeah, go. Yeah, Marconi and you know, Marconi, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go on, no, just say he, you can sell, you can hear where he wanted it to go and, and had a lot of influence on that. Oh, for sure. And that's what happens is like bringing it back to, you know, what you talked about, even just in, you know, what would they do about traveling, uh, traveling bands? Would they, would they get a band in a different city? Would they travel with it? It all comes down to money. And so many of these films were made on a low budget. And what do you, you know, what's the best way to make music on a low budget is, Synthesizer. synthesizer yeah that's interesting and from here on out you know um after the 80s like you got lots of cool scores that incorporate a lot of what came before it you know we talk about we did a pod on it follows i mean you love that movie mm-hmm. and i know you especially love the soundtrack by mm-hmm. disaster piece because it's incorporating synth it's actually different kinds of synth sounds in there right it to me it's yeah like, it's a little more modern more of like the wow like it's more more aggressive synth sounds maybe not like the airy synth you know like the european club austrian club synth that you would get in some of the other ones to me it feels a bit more aggressive Uh, and then you get you know hereditary uh that was brought to life by Colin Stetson, right? That Canadian musician who used only low winds to create the drone. So he didn't want to use synthesizer. He was using actually, because he's a wind player. So he was, you know, staying in his wheelhouse and try to create something that was moving away from like, we talked about Halloween, like that leap motif, that motive that's connected to the killer, you know, and more just try to create music that's its character on its own, a soundscape. Then you got Joseph Bashara, Malignant, Insidious. A lot of synthesizer there. His scores are actually quite interesting. We don't talk enough about him, but. Yeah, you can see the evolution of music, how it's changed, uh, not only with filmmaking, but with technology. But I feel like, uh, didn't we jump something pretty, uh, pretty significant here, Jamie, in the 80s? I feel like we got one we got to bring up here. Yeah, what's what's going to be that one? What, what, what do you think is like the most famous motive that would basically turn any grade six, seven kid into a piano player uh, if there was a piano in the music room? What do you what do you think? I have no idea. I don't play piano. <laughs> <laughs> what the 
fuck you talking about? <laughs> this is the thing. Everyone learns this before they even know the movie because everybody's parents do this to them when they're in the bathtub. Yeah. How many times have I done that to my kid? He doesn't even know what I'm doing. He's just like, okay. But oh, but it's like it's the two notes, and then you've got that. As I just tried to do it with my with my voice, you've got the that brass that comes like almost like this sound the alarm. Oh yeah, it's totally the. Uh, it's yeah, like it's the, like it's like what's the, the army one called? Like, it's like the. It's like the it's like the baseball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jaws, so Jaws is like you'd be we'd be remiss without, and that's John Williams. You know, John Williams is John Williams. Everybody knows John Williams. The guy's written. Star Wars. The most, yeah, he's written the most famous, most recognizable melodies and motives from, you know, the biggest Hollywood film. Jurassic right? Park. He did Jurassic Park. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. I, you know, I still love that score. Just the opening to it um, is amazing. And my students, we played that in, in our band before some years ago and they love that. Is Jurassic Park a horror movie? Because the sequel is definitely, I would say number three definitely is. You know, it's interesting, right? Like we talked about gremlins and children's horror. Isn't Jurassic Park, isn't that a horror film from the perspective of a child? Yeah, in a lot of ways. I would say it's in that realm. I think remember again, it's Spielberg. This is like, this this is the space he was trying to figure out. He was playing in this space. And I think by Jurassic Park, he's got it nailed, right? He knows. Oh my God, yeah. The only, like really, although you do see some people get eaten by dinosaurs, there's like one, two people. And then there's the guy who's Samuel L. Jackson when his body's discovered. Those are the gruesome parts. But the rest of the movie, there's nothing really, there's there's fear and there's there's anxiety, but there's not, uh, is there a lot of violence? I don't know. No, well, there's no, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of fear, but there's not a lot of violence. Like the guys, you do see the guy in the bathroom get eaten. Yeah, the guy in the bathroom gets gets eaten. (laughs) But really, it's like it's just fear when the you know when they're in the car and you know the uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex is upturning the the car and whatnot. But anyway, and that's the thing. But the soundtrack goes from that big opening that you talked about when they see the dinosaurs for the first time, the music soaring through the sky. But there's also the T Rex theme, which is like adds to the terror. Jurassic Park might be a nice one to look at because there's the music is potent in terms of what's there to talk about mm-hmm. and the story itself. And I think that would be a great film. But I digress. And we digress back to just finishing this up. So we've gone from 1922. We've gone to modern day. We've talked about all the different iterations in an overviewed sense, but really kind of hit on some of the key points and some of the key movies that had kind of had a step along the way into the progression and evolution of of horror music. I think I'm excited to kind of get into the specific movies. All right, Jim, well, that was kind of cool. Uh, thanks for taking me through that journey. Now, I know when you get into these individual pods, you're going to either look at a composer or a movie um, but I think one of the things you talked about was you want to look at like what makes a horror soundtrack instill fear in us. Like what are the like literal like our reactions to certain sounds. So I'm kind of interested to hear where you want to go with that one and what uh, movie you'll, you'll kind of build that one around. Um, anything else you want to cover before we sign off on our first uh, over on the on the overview here of terrifying tracks? Uh, in the next episode, what I want to do or what we want to do is. First, I want to look at how horror music scares us. So 
the slows and the fast, the tempo changes, the, the dynamics, the, the lows and highs of the pitches. Then I want to quickly take a look at what a leap motif is and then how it's used. And then also how happy music has been um, incorporated into horror film. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. We've got a few things coming out. We're doing Event Horizon soon. We've got a brand new Jogcast coming out, which might be out by the time this is out. Um, and we are looking forward to uh, some other films and maybe something for Christmas. Uh, please uh, like, subscribe, all that stuff. Try to keep the downloads going. And um, if you got any questions for us, if you got a movie you want us to do, if you want, uh, if you just want to talk to us, make sure you email us at Jamie. Fill in the email here. All right, we're going to go the running scared podcast at gmail.com. Right. Follow us on Twitter at, at running scared PD. Uh-huh. You, you can follow us on Instagram at, at running scared pod. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find us on Patreon if you search up running scared. Give us a review. We recently just received a four star review, <laughs> which was pretty good. I have no idea who did it. Thank you to whoever decided to give us four stars. It's better than one two and three next time if you can write a review so we know who you are we can shout you out on air but yeah it was a four-star review so it sounds like we're doing at least something right and we're enjoying it so thanks for listening the running scare podcast is written and produced by jamie roberts and robert lendrum original music by jamie roberts this episode edited by jamie roberts thanks for listening and tune in next time for another edition of running scared terrifying tracks. deals very rarely with character portrayal or has little or no interest in people's emotions, but who deals in situations generally that of a suspenseful nature. His interest in music is only in relationship to how the suspense can be heightened.